remind ourselves of Palm Sunday. Thank you for Adam also bringing us through a prayer time and a reading of God's Word. It is a um, very special Sunday, as we know. This Sunday is um, Palm Sunday. And we remember this because of what Matthew helped us sing this morning about Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, uh, originally translated, means save us. God save us. came to mean honor and blessing. And that's exactly what the people did on that day. They came out. They recognized that this was their king. They said, this is the guy who our hopes and our desires lay on. And they did the appropriate thing. They bowed down. They put the palm leaves down. And it was good. It was a really good thing that they did on that day. And then you guys know that story. Four days later, they turn around and they said, we don't like this guy. Let's crucify this guy. Let's kill this guy. Let's take this guy out. And that's kind of something I want you to think about this morning. Because I'm going to consider these guys snowflakes. You know, they were there for a little while. They thought they had backbone. Then all of a sudden, they could not stand seeing something that they did not want. As they come before Christ, they wanted the bread. They come before Christ like, heal me. I want something for me. As they come before Christ, they want him to overthrow the Roman government. They're looking for Christ for all these things, and when they did not get what they wanted, when God didn't do what they wanted him to do, they turn on him. And I want you to think here this morning, as all of us sit here in this sanctuary or sit online, how close are we to this group of people? That when things are good, we look at Christ and we look at God and say, yes, I'm going to serve you. Things are nice. When it doesn't go our way, we don't get what we want. We're not getting the job that we want. We're not getting the grades that we want. We don't have our wife or our husband or something that we really want. How quick are we to turn away from the Lord as well? And just like these people have turned away, I want you to consider that this morning. That's not about me. It's not about what I want. But we're going to take a step back this morning and we're going to see... Oh, it's not working? You want me to use this one? Okay. I'm going to turn this one. Is it better? Okay, sorry about that. So we're going to turn away from thinking about what we want this morning and look back and think about, is there a bigger picture? Is there something larger going on than what we can see right in front of us? So why don't we open with a word of prayer and we'll go over what we need to cover uh, this morning. Father, very thankful for our time of worship this morning. We sang about Hosanna, this term that means you save us. We cannot save ourselves. We see the sin around us. We see the sin in the world. And worst of all, we see the sin in our own life. And we know that we cannot save ourselves. And we come to you and see the great and sovereign God you are and how you prepared a perfect deliverance for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so last week, uh, Pastor Hans brought us through a remembrance of the Gospel of John. He chose a great verse, John 3.16, and remember that for God, so, and he changed the word so to thus. This is the way that we see God's love. He sent his only son, and that was a great way to look at John 3.16. Now, what else he took us through was a very interesting thing about Heidelberg Catechism. 
He went through it pretty quickly, but if you guys are listening, he went through a very interesting progression in a Heidelberg Catechism. We start off with sin. Now, this is a state where all of us are in. We can't save ourselves. We're mired in it. It eats at us. I heard this week it's like a monster. It's this thing that can take over our lives. But God never leaves us in that state. He reminds us now it's deliverance. We need something from the outside to come in. We need a savior to come in. We need someone else to take away the things that we cannot fix ourselves. And when we see our state, we see what God has done for us, there's only one appropriate response, and that's thanks. And a Heidelberg Catechism kind of goes through that. Now, what Adam helped us read this morning is Passover. Now, Passover is a very interesting thing because we're going to study three times where Christ in his first year of ministry, second year of ministry, third year of ministry does something very unique at each Passover. I'd like to review that with you. You guys know this story. But it's an interesting story because the Israelites are held captive in Egypt. It's a very difficult time for them. They're in slavery. It's very hard oppression. Their small little boys are being murdered. There's genocide going on. They can't free themselves. And it's a very dark time for Israel during that time. So God says, I'm going to send Moses. I'm going to free my people. But I want to be very clear here. It's not just the Egyptians who are sinners. All the Israelites are sinners. And God says, I'm going to send an angel of death. And it's going to kill every firstborn. Everyone. Israelites included. Every, everyone is going to lose their firstborn as the angel of death comes. Except there's a caveat. There's a caveat. If you take a male um, lamb, one year old, you slay that lamb, take that blood, and put it on your doorposts. You cover your doorposts with the hyssop leaf and the blood of the lamb. The angel of death will pass over you. Your household will be spared from the angel of death coming. And during that night, the Israelites ate a very quick meal. They understood what God's going to do. God's going to do an incredible thing here. And then we have to leave the country very quickly. So they prepare a quick meal. And that's, that's unleavened bread, why we have, um, you know, kind of the matzah, where we have communion with the unleavened bread. We remember this very quick meal that they had. And then they get to leave. God brings them out of the land of slavery, the land where they were oppressed, land they could not free themselves from. And the only appropriate response for what God has done is thanks. They remember the horse and the rider cast in the sea. Remember they started singing songs or dancing. This is a great thing that happened here. And we go from sin, we could not save ourselves from deliverance, to thanks. And if you guys know your Bible, this is Noah, who couldn't save himself. This is uh, Joseph, who cannot save himself. This is King David, who cannot save himself. This is every minor prophet. In there, this is the same thing. We cannot save ourselves. God comes and saves them, and they give them thanks. And this is the theme of Scripture. If you guys know your Bibles, throughout Scripture, it comes again. Our sin, our deliverance by Christ, or foreshadowing of Christ, and our thanks. You guys get this pattern correct. You guys understand the Bible in a very deep way. Okay, so let's go back to what Adam read to us this morning. We're going to the first Passover you guys remember what the first Passover was, where Christ was? He read it to us. It was this time when Christ goes to the temple, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with all the sheep and the oxen. It's a very strange thing. Now, we equate the water into wine as Christ's first kind of public thing. But I consider this is the first time he really steps out in public. We had the, we had the wedding, which was kind of a small private affair, but now he steps out in public. What's the first thing that Christ does when he gets into the temple? 
It's a very strange thing. I mean, in order to start your ministry, you go into the temple and you start turning over the tables, throwing people out, saying this is a den of thieves. You mean my father's house into a den of thieves, thinking that is a very strange way to start your ministry. But I'm going to pose to you that Christ had a very specific reason for doing that. And if we go back to Exodus 12, let's read some of the technicalities of how to handle Passover. On the first day, this is first day of Passover, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. It's a pretty serious thing to eat leaven. And leaven throughout scripture is actually referred to as sin. There's um, something here in Exodus that's being foreshadowed. When you get leaven inside your bread, it's like sin in your household. As far as I know, there's five types of leaven in the New Testament. There's a leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees. Herod is called leaven. There's leaven in Galatian church, and there's leaven in the Corinthian church. So what the New Testament is equating to is that this leaven or the sin is present. And what Christ does is his very first act, a public act, he goes in there and he says, you know what? I'm going to clean house. I'm going to get all the sin out of my father's house that I can do. It's a kind of physical representation of it. But Christ clears out all the sin. And that's a representation of this first Passover. Let's get all the sin out of our house. Now, the fifth leaven I was talking about is the leaven in Corinth. In Corinth, there's a very specific sin. You guys remember what that sin was? Remember this guy? He was doing something? Sleeping with his father's wife. Basically sleeping with his mother. It's a really awful sin, an incestuous sin. And Paul finds out about it. Remember what Paul has very strong words for the Corinthian church. You're to deliver this man, this man who's sleeping with his mom, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Like better to lose your hand, better to gouge out your eye, better to send this guy to Satan so that he could be saved. So it's a great deal of love he has here, but he's telling him, you know what? Clean house. This Corinthian church, you guys have sin in your house. And he goes on more specifically here, says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, as you really are pure, as you really are sinless. How? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You know what? When you guys tolerate a little bit of sin, when you harbor a little bit of sin, it it leavens the whole loaf. Don't tolerate a little bit of sin. Don't say it's okay. Don't turn a blind eye. Don't think that, oh, this is an acceptable sin. Clean house. Get this out. Just as Christ, our Passover lamb, laid down his life in clean house, we do the same thing. And here's his conclusion. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's a great lesson that Christ taught us here by cleaning out the temple, saying, get out of my father's house. We're to clean out the leaven at every level. Why don't we just take a moment here? It's a special time to do this. Just think on a personal level right now. Is there leaven in your life that you need to clean out right now?
It's hard to think about that. It's hard to take time and really look in our own life and see what might be in there. But in time when you do that, and you take this log out of your own eye, and you're able to see, you know what, man, I've just been covering up something terrible in there. As Christ exposes that to you, that should allow you to help those sitting right next to you, to help your family members, to help your cell groups, to help your roommates, to help your family get the leaven out. Got to do it first personally, which is very painful, hard thing to do. But I think we're called to do it as a family. We're called to do it as a fellowship. We're called to do it at a church level. And I have to tell you, it's been a very painful task for myself and the elder board this last six months. We've been running into something in our church. You guys may have an idea of what that is. Causing great disunity here. Causing disharmony in our church. Causing our church to be broken and fragmented. And one of the most difficult things in my life as an elder is go through this time. We have to do what this Corinthian passage tells us here. Deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. When you have to discipline someone, and you have to bring them before the Lord. Do it with fear and trembling. It is a hard thing to do. And a very unpleasant thing to do. You guys might be called to do that sometime. Get the log out of your own eye. Clean up your whole house. And you might be called to do it on a bigger basis. It's a hard thing to do. But it's how Christ set the pattern for us. On the first Passover we see in John. He says, you know what? Clean it all out. Get it all out. It's something we have to do. There's no way to get around it. Okay, let's look at the second Passover. Do you guys remember what the second Passover was? Had it read to us? What was it? You remember? Feeding the 5,000. Yeah, that's the second Passover, correct. So second Passover, um, there's a large crowd that comes to Christ, and he turns to Philip, and he says, Philip, where are we to find bread that all these may eat? Philip's doing the calculations, like, wow, it's going to take a year's wages to feed these 5,000 Christ, and even that would not be enough. Christ takes two fish, five loaves, and he feeds the 5,000. It's an amazing miracle. And these guys are like, wow, this is our king. They want to make Christ king right then and there. Once they get fed, like this is the second Passover, and Christ does this incredible miracle. Now here's the response. Christ tries to teach them, look beyond the bread. Look beyond what you just ate. And here's what he teaches the crowd. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that you may eat of it and not die. So remember, we saved you from slavery. We did an incredible miracle, and the Egyptians let you go. Once the Egyptians let you go, you're out in the wilderness, and God provided the manna. That was great stuff. That was stuff that you didn't deserve. That was stuff that came from heaven. But don't forget, everyone that ate that bread died. You're looking at the wrong thing if you think that's going to save you. The physical stuff, the things of this earth, are not going to save you. Don't put your um, hope in that. Christ goes on to say, I am the living bread, the one that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's a different perspective now. You guys are looking to the physical. You guys are looking to your 401s. You're looking to your jobs. You're looking to your spouse. You're looking for these things to save you. And we're studying an ACF on Friday, where things where um, a moth and rust destroy, where thieves come in and steal, 
You guys start looking at that stuff. That's the wrong thing. That's not going to save you. If anything, we learned in this last year from the coronavirus is that we have no guarantees. This time last year, we were, thinking, you know, we were just in beginning of this coronavirus. There's no guarantee what's going to happen tomorrow. You guys put your credence in your job and your, your pay. You think that's going to save you? That can be taken away in an instant. There's no guarantees on the material things in this world. And Christ is looking here. He's saying, you know what? Look at something more eternal. Look at something more substantial. Look at something that won't be taken away from you, where moth and rust and thieves cannot steal it. So as we think about where we are in this life, and we're looking all around us, he never leaves us in this state. You know, I, I heard the prayer request again come up about the um, violence in our world, particularly toward Asians, particularly toward those people that hate us for the way we look. And it feels bad. And it tastes bad. And I feel like this really is bad. It's a bad thing. None of us like that. But that's never the end of the story. God never leaves us in that state. You guys know Romans 8.28. For all things, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Even these bad things are going to be turned. If we have a correct perspective, we have this perspective that there's an eternal provision that God is asking us, look beyond these things. These things are not good. I'm not trying to say any of these things that are happening to us now are good. But these bad things are happening to us will be used by our Lord God for our benefit. And it'll provide our eyesight and our hope and our desires to be placed on something that can never be taken away from us. Don't keep looking down. Start looking up and see what God has provided through the person of Christ. Okay, we're going to spend most of our sermon time, what's left in our sermon time, doing our third Passover. The third Passover is one that um, is really quite the climax of Christ's life. So I'm going to take you back one more time. We're going to look at the Passover one more time so I understand it a little more in a deeper way, going back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12 gets into the more technical aspects of Passover and what's happening during Passover. I hope you guys are interesting, interested in this. This is interesting to me. This month shall be for you a beginning of months. So set your calendars by this month. Everything resets in the month of Nisan. Nisan is the beginning of a new um, period for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Okay, so we set our calendars by this. On the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. So count 10, 10 days in the month of Nisan, and you get a lamb. Every house needs one. Every provision, every house needs a provision. No one's exempt. Everybody needs to find a lamb. Everybody needs one. Okay, then your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Basically symbolized it can't have sin, can't be deformed, can't have legs and bones broken, can't have defects in it. Find a perfect lamb as best you can. And you shall keep it into the 14th day of the month. So keep it in your household for four, four days. Love and care and make this lamb part of your family for four days because something's going to happen to that lamb um, on the twilight uh, the whole assembly, okay, when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. So basically at 3 o'clock, twilight begins at 3 p.m. 
on, on the 14th day. And it goes till six. Six is the beginning of the new day. So that three hours from three o'clock to six o'clock, you kill that lamb at three o'clock. Okay, so everyone gets this. This is what every Jew knew what had to happen. On the 10th day of Nisan, you get the lamb, examine it without blemish. 14th day, you take that lamb which you love. This lamb is part of your household. Kill that lamb and you kill it at three o'clock. Okay, so here is a chart of what I just talked about. So on the first day here that we're going to talk about is the 10th day of Nisan. We just talked about that. On the 10th day of Nisan, you're supposed to find your lamb. Go get your lamb. 10th day of Nisan. Get your lamb and bring it into your household. What day is today? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. We celebrate because Christ, riding on a donkey on the 10th day of Nisan, came into Jerusalem. He's riding in on a donkey. What do you think is surrounding Christ as he's walking in to the gates of Jerusalem? Remember how many people came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover? Tens, possibly hundreds. Josephus says probably hundreds of thousands of pilgrimage. Um, Jewish um, Israelites were bringing their lambs in with them because they had to celebrate Passover. So all these people needed a house. Each house needed a lamb. Where do these lambs come from? They're coming from the outside because they had to sacrifice them. They probably did not live in Jerusalem, so they had to bring them in. Hundreds, thousands, possibly tens of thousands of lambs are coming through the gate with Christ. What did John the Baptist teach us in 1 John 1 29? When he looks at Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our Lamb. As Christ comes riding in with all these other sheep, it's an incredible picture of Christ riding in with all these sheep. This is the final Passover Lamb. Behold, the final Passover Lamb, the one who will take away the sins of the world. Christ is riding in on the 10th of Nisan with all the sheep. So what are you supposed to do after you get your lamb into your house? Remember next? You're to examine this lamb. Make sure there's no blemish on this lamb. Make sure this is a perfect lamb. As best you can, you're supposed to find a lamb without blemish. What is Christ doing for the next four days between the 10th and the 14th? He's in the temple being examined by the Pharisees. By the side. They're asking questions. Who are you? Who is your father? Where did you come from? They can't pin down Christ because he's got the perfect answer every time. They're trying to find blemish in Christ. They're trying to point out, like, hey, you can't be who you claim to be. Every time, Christ proves them wrong. He shows he's without blemish. He shows he is God himself. They hate it. They can't stand it. Because, like, hey, the whole world's going to follow this guy. We can't stop this guy. This guy has all the right answers, done all the right things. He's done miracles that no one else can do. The whole world is going to follow him. We saw this as we studied John. They hate Christ. They can't stand it because they're examining him. They're putting him on trial. They're doing this. He, he walks through everything. He is without blemish. It's an amazing thing. And then on um, Thursday, we take that lamb and we pray that lamb to be slain. Christ has the Passover dinner with his disciples. He's eating with them. We talked about this and probably Judas is in the place of honor. Judas runs out in nighttime to betray him. And, and he does an incredible thing there that night, reminding us that this is his body. This is my blood to be um, remembered in remembrance of me. And then the terrible thing happens. The worst betrayal in history. Christ is betrayed that night. And he goes, who's he stand before? 
Kanji for Annas, Caiaphas, eventually Pilate. Annas can find no wrong in this guy. I mean, they make up charges against him. Caiaphas can't find anything wrong with this guy. He's being examined even further. The examination's getting tougher. He's standing before more and more authority. Eventually, he stands before Pilate. What is Pilate's final conclusion when he presents Christ before them? I find no guilt in this man. There's nothing wrong with this guy. There's not a single blemish in Christ at all. Christ is being examined to the nth degree, and he passes every test. He's the perfect Passover lamb. There's no blemish in Christ. There's nothing wrong with this lamb. He's perfect. He is the final Passover lamb in a way that we could never have imagined. It's amazing what happens as Christ goes through his trials, his death, and finally his burial. It's an amazing thing. We're never going to see this ever happen again. No one else will be able to fulfill the prophecy, the foreshadowing, the thing that God set up 1,500 years before Christ in this Passover thing when they're coming out of Egypt. Can you see what God did in that time frame? You think, oh, these Jews celebrate Passover. It's an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing because God planned it 1,500 years before Christ for Christ to fulfill it. Who else could have planned that out? How else could that timing have happened? Who else could have been that blameless, that pure, that much of a man, that much of God, all at once, 100% man, 100% God? How else could that have been for us? God did this for us. He planned this all out for us. It's an amazing God that did all this. So that's basically Passover. Oh, the important thing, one important thing I forgot to mention, John 15 tells us that Christ died at the ninth hour. Remember, they start their clock at 6 a.m., the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. 3 p.m., Christ gives up his last breath. Eli, Eli, Sabathani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Breathes his last, dies. What time is that? Three o'clock, twilight. The exact time when you're supposed to kill the Passover lamb, Christ at three o'clock dies. Perfect fulfillment. You can't help but see the analogy and what God has done. It's incredible when you understand this I have to give Irene credit. Irene said, when, we, when you do your review of John, why don't you look at the Passovers? I never really thought about this. I'm giving credit to Irene. And I looked in this and I studied this. I was amazed by what I found. These Passovers are so interwoven throughout Scripture. I just missed it. But as we review John and see what God has done through John, it's an amazing thing. So God takes us deep into the Passover feast and helps us understand. I'd like to take you a little bit deeper because there's something else going on that's even a little bit bigger than this. On Sunday, on the very last day, the Jews were to celebrate another feast after Passover. And we know the next feast after Passover, there's unleavened bread, which I'll get to in a little bit. But then on Sunday, a week after, you remember? It's the feast of first fruits, of new life, of new beginnings. When the Jews brought their, um, this is spring, they have four spring feasts. When they bring their, their first fruits, the first things that God brings to them, again, the new life, they're supposed to celebrate on Sunday. That this is a new beginning. Spring is beginning. The, the new thing, it's kind of like here. We're seeing the leaves bud outside. This is a wonderful thing to remember. What happens on Sunday? We know that Christ resurrects. Christ says, I am the new beginning. I am the new life. These baptismal candidates who go into the water and come out, you guys remember, the old man dies, the new man comes out. It's on Sunday. Christ fulfills the feast of first fruits by being resurrected on Sunday. 
And that's why we're here celebrating on a Sunday, not Sabbath day, which was Saturday, but because of what Christ did on Sunday. It's an amazing thing. Christ is fulfilling one by one. He's nailing them down. I am, I am, I am, I am. And it can be in no other person than Christ. I hope that gives you an amazing picture of Christ fulfilling the feast, these things that were done for hundreds and thousands of years before him. Christ is fulfilling it. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper. And I told you right now that there are spring festivals. There's the feast, there's four spring festivals in the Jewish calendar. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the one we just talked about, the first fruits, and then 50 days later, it is Pentecost. Pentecost. There's those four in the spring. And there's three in the fall. These are tougher. Anyone know the three spring ones in the fall? Anyone? It's tough. Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the biggest one on our calendar, the Day of Atonement, um, Yom Kippur, and then the last one, it's a tough one, is Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of Succoth. And it's amazing here, when we look at these feasts, I just told you that he fulfilled every detail of the Feast of the Passover. Christ's death fulfills every iota of the Passover. The unleavened bread, as I was getting to, this leaven is sin. Christ is sinless as he's dead and buried into the ground at that point. He's taking all of our sin with him in there. And he totally fulfills the feast of the unleavened bread. That don't let any leaven into you. We're talking about taking logs out of your eye. Christ didn't have to do that. He took all of our sin and buried it during that time of the feast of unleavened bread. We talked about the first fruits. He is the first one to be raised. He's the first fruits, the new beginning. And then lastly, he prophesies about Pentecost. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to send you another. It's even better for me to leave that you get the Holy Spirit. And he tells us about Pentecost. Christ completely fulfills all these Old Testament feasts. Again, I never knew this stuff until I started studying this week. I'm thinking, wow, it's amazing. These were not just celebrations to happen just because God wanted these guys to celebrate. They were going to foreshadow something. They're going to keep your eyes on something, and it's really all about Christ. You know, it's, to me, if you want to go even a little deeper, it's interesting. We talk about the spring. I told you this. These things have not occurred yet. We talk about these fall festivals, the Feast of the Trumpets, most likely, anyone? Is Christ's second coming. It's going to be announced. It's going to be trumpets. It's going to be an incredible thing. The earth will never be the same. Christ announces he's coming again during this Feast of Trumpets. Day of Atonement, most likely the judgment seat. Christ is going to judge us. There's going to be this great throne judgment, and the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. Christ is sitting on his throne. And lastly, you know the Feast of Tabernacles, these tents where you're wandering around, you guys don't have a home. Christ says, no, during the second coming, I judge and I set up my eternal home. It's here once and for all. Christ is going to fulfill all these things in the future. So we look back and we say, Christ fulfilled all these things that were started 1,500 years before me, 1,500 BC. Christ fulfilled all those things. And what's unique here is that Christ is coming back to fulfill all those things. Those things are still to happen. We have a great things to look forward to. The second coming, the judgment seat, when he's going to set everything right. Remember I told you it looks bad and it feels bad and it tastes bad? It's not always that way. At some point, Christ is going to set this straight. And we're going to be able to sit there and watch it unfold. It's going to be an amazing thing. You and I get to participate in that. 
We're going to be part of that as Christ comes again. So that leaves a very interesting question. What happens between spring and fall? Summer break. You guys know that, right? Summer's coming, right? Summer's coming. You guys are looking forward to it. You guys all want to be part of the summer. The summer in between is a very interesting time because now we know what had happened in the fall. We're looking, excuse me, we know what happened in the spring. We know what's going to happen in the fall. And we're in this period of summer, a very unique time in church history where we know the gospel. We know what Christ has done. We know what he's accomplished already. And we get to tell everyone else about it. This is our job now. There's a small window in time when we get to share the gospel. We get to tell others about what Christ has done because we're looking forward to something great. We are such an interesting time in history, such a pivotal time in our history. We can see what is done, and we're looking forward to what is coming. So this is the deepest picture I can draw for you from Scripture. I, I can't think of a bigger picture because God's been working in this throughout time. Christ came right at the right time. He's the center of this whole picture. He's the one that everything hangs upon. So I want you to sit in your chair today and tell me this, that everything we do here in church is about me and what I want. And I didn't get this. You know, and I'm not satisfied with my life. And I feel that God owes me this. And I'm angry with God because when we start having that attitude, I think you're missing a picture, a really big picture. And this is what our culture has taught us. It's all about you. Everything in this world revolves around you. Let's make this life more comfortable for you. Let's see what God can do for you. That's what you often hear in the pulpit. Let's see how God can serve you. God's chief end is to make you happy. That's what we've turned it to, right? But when you step back and you see what God has done through the person of Christ, I hope you disappear, that we might decrease so that Christ may increase. And you see something here, and we've done it through the book of John. Um, Pastor Adam, Pastor Hans, myself have done what we can to open up the book of John so you can see this. See a much bigger picture going on just about me and about what I want. So we talked today earlier about this idea that I consider them snowflakes. You know, they're good for a while and then they fell out. They couldn't stand it. They couldn't take the heat because their focus was on what I want and about me. And what we learned today is that we're probably, and I hope that you're somewhere on this path, that if you're really young in the faith, or even old in the faith, doesn't matter, I hope you see the sin, that this is bad, it looks bad, it tastes bad, it feels bad. And you realize this is happening all around me. And it really doesn't matter whether you're a young Christian, a very mature Christian, you're not a Christian. All of us need to be aware of the sin. It's all around us. It's here. And it should push you to something. Like, I don't like that. I don't like this state. I don't like being in sin. I don't like this. I don't like who I see in the mirror in the morning. I don't like that sin. There's something wrong here. And it leads us to the state of deliverance. That we need someone. We need something outside us. Something greater than who we are. And our eyes need to focus on Christ. We've been taught by this word to look everywhere else but Christ. But as we look at the Gospel of John, we have no hope outside of Christ. It has to be Christ. What is the natural response of what we learned this morning, what we learned through John, what we spent a year and a half going through John? It's now Thanksgiving. Once you understand what Christ has done, once we understand this light of what Christ has done, we not, 
no longer need to seek more things. We're not here this morning to get more stuff, to get more things about ourselves. We have everything. We have everything in Christ. And now, if we have everything, we rejoice, we give thanks, we bow our knee to the God who's given us everything. And if we want anything at all, if we want anything at all, we should ask for more ability to sing praises, to give thanks to our God. That's the one thing we should ask for. And that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This life is abundant. This life is full. This life is joyful. This world is not. Your lives might not. Your circumstance might not be. But when you take your eyes off of yourself and put it back on Christ, you're going to have joy. This is what John has taught us. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we sit before your word. And it is your word this morning that humbles us and convicts us It reminds us of the deep sin in our own life and thinking about it's all about me and what I want and what you're going to do for me. As we unfolded the Passover this morning, may we see that it's all about Christ and what he's done. And he's the only one that could have done it. And we see that, may we have our heart filled with thanks, filled with joy, filled with worship for a God that's orchestrated everything in history to bring Christ to us. And John reminds us that these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have this joyful, abundant, thankful life that can only come from you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.